As uh, promised last year, we're starting our new series in Ecclesiastes today. We'll be doing it the first Sunday of the month, because if we spent a whole year talking about nothing but Ecclesiastes, it, it, the message is somewhat refi- somewhat focused, and I thought it would be a little much. So we'll continue our first our second Corinthian series the rest of the time. Now this this week, as I was working through the first 11 verses, I was quite excited and quite focused. Then I went back to write the introduction for the first three verses, using the first three verses, and the introduction came out to five pages, so I figured we'll have to stick to just the introduction today. Uh, why did it take so long? Well, it's, it's an important book, but it's a really misunderstood book. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that somebody thought it was really... At best, in existentialism or fatalism, the, the book was about, and that it was a book that Christians really shouldn't read. And I was horrified by that description, and I've seen it many times. I think they just don't understand the purpose of the book, the purpose of God in including this book in the Holy Scriptures. All scriptures God breathed in useful. This is a useful book for us. So over the course of the message this morning, I I hope to to give you that passion for why we want to look at this book, why we want to think about these things. Because it really answers the question, what is our purpose in life? Where in this life do we find our comfort? Where do we find our joy? I remember as an atheist, I was quite materialistic and greedy, and my belief was the man with the most toys when he dies wins. And I think there's an antidote and an answer to that in this book. That our comfort does not have to be in the things we have. It does not have to be in the pride of our life. It does not have to be in our wealth. Those things are fleeting and meaningless in the end. They provide no lasting gratification. Our gratification needs to come from God. So before we read this and look at the passage... Keep, keep in mind that, that idea that the purpose of this book is really exploring all that this world has to offer and contrasting it ultimately with eternity with God. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending us your word and pray, Lord, that you would teach us to love and rejoice in all of it, that we might understand these things and might turn our hearts away from the world and turn our hearts more focused to you. Ask your blessing on the reading of your word and the preaching of it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read just the first 11 verses this week. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows from the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. But all things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing such which it can be said, this is new? It has been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things. Yet to among those who come after, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask your blessing on this passage as we study it today. Help us, Lord, to see the value of your word and to turn our hearts to it and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the introductory verse identifies the author 
of this book. The author, he calls himself the preacher. Uh, some people take that as a pseudonym, a name, koleth in Hebrew. But the word, meaning of the word is a collector of sentences, a preacher, a public speaker, someone who speaks in the assembly. And I think Solomon is using that of a title. It's his title for this book. I am the preacher, and this is what my sermon. He calls himself the son of David, king in Jerusalem, not meaning just any descendant of David who became king, but Solomon, the son who ruled after him. And it's important because Solomon, in all of the history of the kings of Israel, is as unique as his father. His father is described as a man who lived for God, who loved God and was loved by God, and whose focus was on God. Solomon has a different description. We learn about that, I think, most clearly in the story of the Queen of Sheba. She sought out Solomon because of what she had heard about him. And I want to read that in 1 Kings 10. I'm going to read the first nine verses. The Queen of Sheba, when she heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So it sounds like she didn't believe him, but wanted to find out if he really was as wise as people said. So she came to Jerusalem with a great retinue with camels bearing spices and gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, all her hard questions. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that were offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Took her breath away. It was so amazing. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and had seen with my own eyes. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because Yahweh loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon's reputation in Scripture is of the wisest king, indeed probably the wisest man to walk the earth. Remember, Solomon had that dream when he was first anointed king, and in it the Lord appeared to him and asked, What shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and you have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to my... To David, my father, now be fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? And God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the lives of those who hate you. You have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge, for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and will also give you riches and possessions and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you and none after you shall have the light. Second Chronicles 1, 7 through 12. Yeah, sadly, towards the end of his life, he stumbled, giving in to his many wives who were pagans and setting up pagan altars and offering sacrifices on them. But he was arguably the wisest, the richest, the most honored, the most productive man in history. And he is the one who is examining all the things of this life. He examines wisdom. He examines honor. He examines pleasure. He examines wealth. Everything that this world has to offer us, he examines it and says what it is worth. 
And that is really what the book is doing. He's examined everything done under the sun and showing us the truth of it and the truth of the meaning of life. Now you might ask, what is this meaning of life? Well, that's really the great theme of this book. And you'll find it if you read the first chapter and the end of the last chapter, you'll get a pretty good picture of it. But surprisingly, it's lost on most people. Perhaps not so surprisingly. As a result, we need to spend some time thinking about God's purpose in including this piece of wisdom literature in his holy, inspired, infallible, all-sufficient word. Remember, and I mentioned it earlier, that Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes this book. This book is useful for teaching us, for instructing us, for training us in righteousness, for preparing us, equipping us for every good work before God. And so I think it's very useful for us to study this book and study this message and be confident in the Lord. Now, in these first three verses, two of the key concepts of the book are introduced. The first one is in verse 1, and the second is in, uh, the first is in verse 2, and the second is in verse 3. But I did them backwards. So the purpose under the sun we need to really think about first. What does it mean under the sun? Believing, some believe it's a reference to hard labor done in the day outside in the sun. Anybody who's ever done that, particularly in this area in the summer, knows that being out in the heat in 115 degrees, dry, thirsty, miserable, we don't like to do it. You know, we understand it's, it's a miserable thing. And they think this is a book of pessimism about how hard it is to work under the sun in this cursed earth. Uh, I think they're missing the point. In fact, it can't be his meaning because he uses that phrase under the sun for things that aren't done under the physical sun. In verse 9 of the first chapter, he says there's nothing new under the sun. If it just meant in the daytime, in the heat of the day, then is he saying there are things new that are done in the darkness? No, I don't think so. He's not talking about physical labor, and he's not talking about the daytime. In chapter 2, 13, and 14, he said, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity. I'm striving after the wind. I think here, under the sun and under heaven are used as synonyms. And because of that, he's really talking about everything that's done on earth in this creation. Right? In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sun because the sun, S-O-N, of God will be our light. And he's talking not about that, not about eternity, but about the here and now, about this world. Also note, he continues concerning seeking wisdom in verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also was but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We'll get to that verse when we get to it. But the quest for wisdom was included in the work done under the sun. And the quest for wisdom is not done out in the heat of the day laboring physically. It's usually done inside and often done at night by candlelight. They work late into the night by the light of a candle to gain wisdom and knowledge because they were working during the day. So, again, this really, we're not talking about the day. We're talking about all the work and all the labor that man does under the sun. In chapter 4, he starts off saying again, I saw all the oppression that was done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Ecclesiastes 4.1. Oppression and wickedness are usually done not in the daytime, but at night. 
Jesus, when he was being arrested by the chief priests, we read the chief priests and officials of the temples and elders came out against him. He says, have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day by day in the temple? You did not lay hands on me there, but in this, but this is your hour in the power of darkness, Luke 22, 52, and 53. Oppression, which he's talking about being done under the sun, is done under the cover of darkness, uh, normally. And think, therefore, what he's talking about. We could go on and on with evidence from the book of Ecclesiastes. But clearly it's not talking about just the physical labor under the sun, but all the work that man does for himself. Suffice it to say, a better understanding would be everything done on earth, under heaven, for ourselves, is the idea he's concerned. Now, back in verse 2, the second concept is that all of these things done under the sun, all of these worldly pursuits, are in vanity. Now, the English word has taken an odd evolution and is misunderstood by many English speakers. I know when I first became a believer and I read that, I thought it meant vain, as in pride. That's the definition it has today. If you look in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, vanity is inflated pride in oneself and one's appearance. Conceit. Definitely not the meaning it has here in this text. It's using the older definition of vanity. If you look in my... 1828 Webster's Dictionary, it says, Vanity is emptiness, a want of substance to satisfy desire, uncertainty, inanity. And it gives example, vanity of vanities, said the preacher, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes 1. Yes, Webster, the original Webster's Dictionary, and Mr. Webster used the Bible as a way of defining words. He used the biblical text as the example very encouraging, and I, I use that dictionary for looking up all the words in the Puritans that I don't know or don't understand why they mean what they mean. When you read things like, you know, the Holy Spirit preventeth salvation, and you're like, what? Preventeth used to mean pre-event, <laughs> comes before. Uh, so an old dictionary like that is very helpful in figuring things out when you're reading the Bible and reading the old Puritan texts. So this, this, this English meaning can, it can also mean a fruitless desire or endeavor, a trifling labor that produces no good, and emptiness and untruth. And that's more in keeping with the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word habel literally means a vapor or a breath. Figuratively, it's used for things that are vain, empty, lacking in substance. If you think of the vapor, you know, you see the fog and then it dissipates and goes away like on a cold morning when you breathe out. That's what it's referring to, and it just dissipates. And he's saying that's what everything we do under the sun is like. Everything we do for ourselves, everything we do for this world, it just vanishes over time rather quickly and is forgotten. And as we read through that passage, you know, there's nothing new. Nobody remembers what happened before because it's a vapor. And that's more the figurative meaning. Uh, it's used of the beauty of a woman, which fades quickly. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So a beautiful heart, one that fears the Lord, is of lasting value, set in opposition to the beauty which a young woman may have but may lose as they get older. I was once told that I should be a movie star because I was so handsome. You look at me today and it's like... Are you insane? <laughs> yes, beauty is very fleeting. When I was a teenager, I was apparently handsome. Now, not so much. My niece from in Indonesia cried when she saw me on the video call. I think it was the beard, though. They don't have those over there. Anyway, that's the use of the word, the meaning of the word, that it, like the breath that comes out on a freezing cold day, it, it vanishes quickly. This also, interestingly, is used extensively of the idolatry of the people of Israel and the people around them. An example would be in 1 Kings 16.26. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of 
Israel to anger by their idols. Now certainly in the context, idolatry is the sin that he made Israel walk in, but the word there is the same word translated as vanity. By their vanity, by their meaninglessness. The idols were not even called idols sometimes, they were called vanity. Empty, meaningless things. Anyway, the idea of the fleetingness of the things of the world is brought out a lot in the New Testament. And it's good to link the New and the Old Testament together because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was there. It is his word in the Old Testament. And it hasn't changed. Like we'll see later in the book of Ecclesiastes, James uses this idea when talking about wealth. It says in James 1, 9 through 11, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We tend to think of the opposite. The poor is humiliated, the rich is exalted. But he, he gives his explanation. He goes, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James was saying the pursuit of wealth and wealth itself is vanity, which Solomon will say in this book later on. Peter brings out similar ideas. 1 Peter 1, 9, uh, 1 through 122 and through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, one another, love one another with earnesty from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, to the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of glass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's contrasting the teachings of the word with all life. It but passes away. I think John helps really crystallize the idea I'm trying to drive at when he speaks of the love of the world. He says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think that's really a great summary of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's all about the desires we have of the flesh, the desires we have for wealth, the desires we have of pride, of the things we have, the things we do, the reputation we have. And that's why I spent so much time talking about Solomon earlier. You know, he had the reputation that no one has ever had before. Nobody had the level of respect he had. Nobody had the wealth he had. Nobody had the power he had. And yet, he then is more equipped than anyone to say, if you, you may say, oh, if I only had a little more money, I'd be happy. If I only had a little bigger house, a little nicer car, a little better stuff. Well, Solomon could have anything he wanted. And he gives us his explanation of what it is. He had more authority than anyone. You know, if I had a little more authority, I could make the world a better place and I'd be happy. And he examines it all from that perspective of his greatness. And like John says, you know, the world is passing away with its desires. But the one who does the will of the Lord, the will of God, abides forever. The idea of vanity in Ecclesiastes is not somebody is conceited, or some translations render it that it is meaningless, but rather that it is fleeting. It's of no lasting eternal value. The Bible is, the book of Proverbs, also written by Solomon, talks about a man's wealth being his stronghold. You know, during this life, while you're here, wealth has great value. It's not meaningless. But for eternity, it's like a vapor. It is past. It's gone. It's not going with you. You can't take it with you. What you can take with you is your obedience to God, as Peter pointed out, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. That will follow you. So, 
John's contrast between the vanity of worldliness and the eternity of godliness is something we need to keep in mind as we consider the teachings of the book of Ecclesiastes. We can see this is the preacher's point, I think, clearly in the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. If we look at the last chapter, the last two verses, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, it says, the end of the matter, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard, meaning all of his examinations of all the things this world has to offer. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. Yeah, we spoke about this often in our study through the book of Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. And the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, we see it again. Our whole life should be lived in preparation for the day we will stand before God, because this short, fleeting life is nothing compared to eternity. If you think about 10,000 times 10,000 years, you know, what you do there is really going to be in part determined by how we live here. For those who do not know God, it is torment. For those who know God, we will not all be equally blessed. Somebody will be doing the dishes in the kitchen. Somebody will be out playing golf. Well, I don't play golf. I'd rather do dishes than golf, but <laughs> you get my point. You know, there'll be different, we see in Scripture different levels of blessedness in heaven. And that's the point. Why focus on the things of this life? Man's purpose is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Shorter Catechism, question number one. The first question little children memorized when the catechism, since the catechism has been written. Our goal, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this wisest man, carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to Second Peter 2, or Second Peter 1, 19-21, he wrote this book so that we could be, could be complete, lacking in nothing. He starts the book essentially saying, everything we do in this life is little more than a mist that passes away. So what's it all about? The meaning of life the meaning, the value, the purpose of life. And when we read Ecclesiastes, what we see is not the purpose of life as it should be lived as a Christian. But I think what we're seeing is the purpose of life lived by the godless, apart from God, compared to essentially eternity. And in that we see it meaningless, valueless, a fleeting vapor. You know, the good... People may say, oh, but I have success because of my sin. I have wealth because of my sin. I have happiness because of my sin. But as Solomon examines each of those, he sees, even if you don't have sin and you have those things, it's like a vapor. It's going to pass. That shouldn't be your focus. That shouldn't be what you desire. That shouldn't be where your comfort comes from. Many a man has found out that wealth and power and prestige. They don't comfort you when you need the comfort. Our comfort comes from God. So what's going on? Why is it like this? I think if we go back to the Garden of Eden, where we read about man's fall, it becomes clearer. Remember Satan said, For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Paul reveals in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. My point, though, is Adam wasn't deceived. He saw something he desired and felt that it was of more value than the cost he would pay. He made a choice, a willful, deliberate choice. That choice was to forsake God and pursue his own interests. By getting, yes, the knowledge of good and evil, but more importantly, being like God. In other words, what's examined here in the book of Ecclesiastes is Adam chose to pursue his own philosophical self-existence. I will not be dependent upon God. I will be like God. I will be independent. I will be able to make my own choices, be my own person. I remember once reading 
Somebody saying that Satan did man a favor by freeing him from the constraints he was under. I think we see what that favor was, both in Genesis and elsewhere. Ultimately, that willful choice was to forsake God, pursue his own interests. The knowledge of good and evil was just a small part of it. His self-existence, apart from the creator, apart from the sustainer of all things, apart from his creator, whom he knew personally, that was his choice. It wasn't dependent on anyone or anything for his existence or sustenance. He was going to be his own man. That is the willful desire of men throughout all ages. No authority over him to submit to. No authority to judge him. No authority to condemn him. He was going to be independent. That's what men want today and have wanted really ever since Adam. His descendants and hired have desired that throughout all time. And I think he realized the absurdity of his foolishness immediately after as he had to hide from God in the Garden of Eden. Why do I say this? Well, because philosophers have struggled with this desire for self-existence apart from God, trying desperately to find meaning to life, purpose to life, without God. One of the reasons I hate pagan philosophy so much of the Greeks and the Romans is because they're looking, their purpose really is to find meaning in life without God, the true God. What happens when you do that is you, you run into sin and run into problems. Now, I'm not a philosopher, and I know the things I'm going to say about philosophy coming up will be hated, despised, and corrected by, by people who are into philosophy. Uh, my purpose isn't to give you a technical education in philosophy. What I want you to look at and see is the absurdity of the philosopher's attempt to find meaning to life apart from God. And that's what Ecclesiastes is really examining, meaning to life apart from God. Now, first, skepticism. Doubts claims of knowledge and attacks the adequacy or the reality of those claims and their sources. Now, what is our source of authority for the Christian, the Bible? What have philosophers done? They've tried to discredit the Bible. Jesus was just a man. Jesus never existed. When I became a Christian, I believe Jesus was a myth invented in the Dark Ages. That I didn't know there was history pointing beyond that. I was so ignorant because men have been so successful in discrediting the Bible in their own minds. The reality is the more you examine the Bible and its histories and its teachings, the more you see its truth. But we need to understand something. Why is skepticism such a big part of philosophy? Why is doubting of authority, doubting of knowledge, doubting of wisdom the key in all philosophies? And the answer, I think, is found in the fact that man's fall resulted in man's heart being darkened by sin. He's no longer a spiritually pure being. He's now a corrupted person. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man's heart, apart from God, is darkened, and his thinking is futile. That is what God says, and that is the foundation of philosophy. Having abandoned God, having refused to worship him as God, or acknowledge him and honor him as God, or give thanks to him, their, their thinking is foolish and darkened. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The rejection of God made man corrupt in his desires and his thinking. The darkness of his heart makes the futility of natural man's thinking always going to be wrong. Natural man's ability to understand reality was lost. Right? 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. God is a spirit. He created the world we see, all of our existence, everything we can touch, everything we can understand through our natural senses was created by God and is sustained by God. And yet they cannot understand these things because they're spiritually understood. You must understand God behind them. And if you do not accept God behind them, you cannot make any sense of them. As a, even as an atheist, I found the whole concept of evolution to be absurd scientifically. It was impossible. But they can't see it because they can't see anything beyond their need to have an explanation apart from God. This doubt, this result, though, is all that man thinks of, all of his facts, all of his truths, all of his reality is built on false premises and false beliefs, have being the basis of them being the rejection of God. All his ideas are wrong. And guess what? A man with any integrity will see that all his ideas are wrong. And what does that lead to? Well, <laughs> skepticism. They don't trust anything because everything they want to believe is wrong. And they can find that out for themselves if they examine it and they search it. And so that drove them either to embrace God's truths or reject all truth and all knowledge. Skepticism, as it grew in its influence in pagan philosophy, led to something we call nihilism. It's a man named Alan Pratt summarizes it, saying it's the belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or communicated. It's often associated with extreme pessimism, radical skepticism, and condemns even existence. The true nihilist would have believe in nothing, have no loyalties, and have no purpose other than perhaps an impulse to destroy. I remember reading a philosophy once. It was kind of as an atheist, my philosophy. Life is a doomed journey of misery and loneliness, punctuated by moments of extreme suffering, and the big hope here, ending in total annihilation, not an eternity of torment in hell. Uh, that's where it leads to. A man named Oswald Spangler wrote a book called The Decline of the West in 1926. He studied a number of cultures to confirm that patterns of nihilism were indeed conspicuous feature in a collapsing civilization. In each of the failed civilizations he examines in his book, he noticed that centuries-old religious, artistic, and political traditions were weakened and finally toppled by the insidious workings of nihilism, really by skepticism brought to its logical conclusion, destroyed all their beliefs, which destroyed their society. And I think we see this reality in the second part of Romans 1, that downward spiral of sin. With sin comes a darkening of the heart and the hardening, the darkening of the mind, the hardening of the heart by God as a consequence, which results in more and more abandonment of truth and rejection of re the true reality. Now, existentialism grew out of these unbelieving philosophers' attempts to, to blunt the destructiveness of nihilism, of where their philosophy had led them in the modern age. It still begins with that assumption that the world is without meaning and purpose, that there is no God, God does not have a plan, there is, because there is no God, and there is no purpose then in what we have. It's all random chance. And it's because the meaning and purpose, if we center them on God, then God as creator, as sustainer of man and of the world is owed allegiance, is owed our submission, and has a right to judge. And sinful man rejects and hates those things. And so he ignores reality. 
He can't understand it, he can't accept it, and he rebels against God and against God's world. So even existentialism, which emphasizes individual person and our freedom as a responsible agent in determining, determining our own development through acts of the will. Again, that's the, the guy Alan Pratt I was, re, I was quoting. In other words, man is the center of his own personal reality. Like our first father, Adam, he's having his self-existence apart from God, where, and he's rejecting the existence of God, not just his authority. And ultimately, this drives people back to the destructiveness of the nihilism, where there is, no, there is nothing. If there isn't God, man ultimately determines there can be nothing else. Man cannot make his own world. Existentialism is that belief that as we tell the story, that becomes our reality. And our reality then is what matters. And we all know where that is, right? Postmodernism. <laughs> the next philosophy I want to mention, people living in a fantasy world. I make my own reality. Generally, uh, postmodernists would all fight against any attempt to summarize what they believe because they all believe different contradictory things. And in keeping with their beliefs, they, they don't believe any attempt to define them would be valid. They define themselves as they feel. They reject the concept of absolute truth and often reject the pursuit of knowledge and truth as being destructive. According to Brian Dugan and some postmodernists go so far as to say that science and technology and even reason and logic are inherently destructive and oppressive because they've been used by evil people, especially during the 20th century, to destroy and oppress others. Uh, I have heard them say that the West, with its logic and its belief in freedom and its belief in personal responsibility, are the cause of the problems of the world not the solution. And that goes to this whole postmodernist idea that they reject the concept of absolute truth, that they reject the concept of reality. There's nothing that a sinful man wants to believe is real other than what they desire. So they examine reality find that it conflicts with everything they want and everything they desire and everything they want to believe, and they say, obviously, the problem is reality. It shouldn't, it's bad. It's wrong. Not me. Reality. This is why philosophers give me a headache. You try reading through books. I had to read um, Sartre, Being in Nothingness. Oh, man. Permanent brain damage from trying to read that book. Horrible stuff. And because they reject reality, and if you reject reality, and you reject absolute truth, you need to replace it with something. You know, there's an old lawyer joke. Lawyer, a uh, lady was taking a survey in a shopping mall, and she called three people over, a housewife, an accountant, and a lawyer. And the warm-up question was, what's two plus two? The housewife says four. The accountant says, let me run it through my spreadsheet. And the lawyer says, what would you like it to be? And that's the summary of postmodernism. What would you like reality to be? We see this in the world where you decide what is truth for you. Everything is totally subjective. You can have your own truth that makes you happy. You can have your own reality that makes you happy. Nothing matters but what you choose. That is what's real for you. And we really have seen this creeping into the church. It's like a cancer. Biblical absolutes are, are rejected. The concept of something being absolute in Scripture is rejected. And they say things like, well, you have your interpretation, and I have my interpretation. Meaning, don't mess with my reality. I've decided what it means. I don't like what it really means. And they give that kind of interpretation. The reality is, God is not a fool. God has not made any mistakes. God in his teaching is absolute. And there's one interpretation. 
We can't have our own. Now, given the inadequacies of the flesh, it's possible that both of us are wrong, but the reality is we both can't be right. There's one. I, I wish I really had the time and the memory to go through the ways postmodernism is destroying the church and destroying Western society, but I really don't. I think Paul's warning in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 is enough. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths can be just that fantasy world of believing what you want to believe to be real. And you run into that in dealing with people who argument fiercely against the scriptures, even in the church, that they have made their belief, and their belief is absolute truth for them, and the Bible's teaching cannot contradict their truth. Uh, We've seen this, and I won't go into it, but Marxism is a great example of that. If you look at the history of Marxism, when has it ever been good for anybody? Uh, Every society that has tried it has destroyed itself. The worst atrocities in human history have been, some of them have been committed by, in the name of Marxism and in achieving what Marxism believes. And yet the church today has embraced it. The church seems to think, well, the Bible isn't making poor people wealthy. It isn't making sick people well. It isn't making everybody happy. Therefore, we need to look to add to it something from the outside. And they pick the philosophy, uh, the religion, really, of Marxism. And it's devastating. I I digress. The purpose, I think, I want to bring to your mind is that struggle to find meaning and purpose in life is a struggle both for the godless and the godly, for the believer. The struggle which often leads men to madness. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, in his Romans 1 passage. The ultimate problem is not that life or truth or reality is meaningless, but that the meaninglessness is when it is apart from God. God has a plan. God has a purpose. If we understand that his purpose is what drives everything, then our view of the world is very different than these pagan philosophers I've been talking about. It's directed towards God. He he is the center. He gives us the meaning of life clearly and explicitly in the Bible and here in the book of Ecclesiastes, even a lot. That verse, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All our pursuits for ourselves, all our pursuits apart from God are at best a vapor or vanity. They're chasing after the wind. We'll get to that one when we get to it. Sometimes they're a danger to us and to our soul. That's what John is saying in that passage I read earlier from 1 John 2, 16 to 17 about the love of the world. If you love the world, you cannot love God. You do not know God. You're an enemy, in fact, of God by your own choice. If we try to find our comfort in worldly things, we are making ourselves an enemy of God. People want to find their comfort and hope in their worldly wisdom, in their wealth, in their success, in their work, in their popularity, etc. I was horrified to read that a large percentage of men die within a year or two after retiring because their entire self-worth and self-meaning was the job. People commit suicide when they lose their wealth. Why? or have a nervous breakdown. Why? Because their meaning was found in their wealth. Our meaning can be found in our health and our abilities and all of those things. And it's like a vapor. It passes. The day may come in this life when we don't have those things. Where should we be finding our comfort? In Christ, in God. We spoke about that a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians. What is our comfort? In knowing God, in knowing that we've been saved from an eternity of torment in hell, knowing that God has chosen to love us and to care for us and will make all things work together for our good. And we can take our great hope in that and our comfort in that 
What matters most to man under the sun is to prepare for that day, the day of the Lord. As the preacher said, and we read earlier, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Unless the one true living God who created man, who created the world man lives in, and indeed created all the things that man can see and touch and know from a worldly perspective, unless that God is truly and rightly worshipped and served as our creator and our God, everything man does, everything man has, is nothing but vanity. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. And that's what we'll be delving into the first Sunday of the month for the next couple of years. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, many of us have realized by examining ourselves, our lives, the things we care about, the things we love and trust, that they are nothing more than vapor. And we know, Lord, that when the godless examines them, they find nothing but despair, nothing but hopelessness. And they turn their hearts to wickedness, they turn their hearts to delusions and fantasies. And we know, Lord, that as your people, we sometimes struggle with that. And we have our hearts fixed on the things of this world and not on the things above. As we go through, Lord, this study in Ecclesiastes, we pray that you will help us to see what truly matters, to see the meaningless of the world and to replace it with meaning in you. Pray, Lord, for this to encourage our hearts, to draw us nearer to you, to give us true hope that we don't despair, true hope that no matter what the world sends to us, no matter what trials and troubles and tribulations we have, we might rejoice in them, knowing that they drive us closer to you. Pray, Lord, for your encouragement of heart as we study these wonderful things. In Jesus' name, amen.